Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon here on Mitch Marathon Month, the uh, holiday edition, actually. It's uh, only two weeks. Yeah. But uh, we have got from the band Down and Out, a singer Joe Elliott. They have a new album out called This Is How We Roll and... All right, he's also the singer for Def Leppard, a band that is going out on tour this summer to play stadiums with uh, the one, the only, the reunited uh, Poison. No, Motley Crue. In fact, both, which is kind of cool. We love Poison, we love Motley Crue, and of course, uh, Joan Jett will be joining them on the tour. And if you listen carefully during the interview, I think, I think Joe suggested or said that we might have more stadium tours in uh, 2021 with the uh, with this lineup. So pay attention. You tell me if you heard the same thing uh, that I heard, but I'm pretty sure we got a little sneak peek into uh, next year. Uh, we also talk uh, Mutt Lang. We talk first album on through the night, 40 years uh, since its release. And so we, uh, we discussed that. And on Instagram, Nikki Six had made a special demand. He has sent out a, a message in his uh, This Story where it said, Hey, Joe Elliott, I want you to play Hello America during the uh, stadium tour. So I asked Joe about that, and he gives us an answer. So uh, without further ado, do you want to get rocked? Let's get rocked. Here's Joe Elliott. We are speaking with uh, Def Leppard singer Joe Elliott. The uh, new album by the band Down and Out is called This Is How We Roll. The latest single is uh, Creatures. And as we say in uh, Montreal, uh, bonjour, Monsieur Joe. How are you? Bonsoir or bonjour, whatever time of day it is uh, where you are. Um, great, actually. Really good. Just being all domestic at the moment. I'm off the road for a little while. So it's all home, trees up, ready to rock. For Christmas and um, life is good. Yeah, and and I do want to talk to you a little bit about Montreal because that that's where I am right now. And of course, uh, Def Leppard has a great history with uh, the province of Quebec and the city of Montreal. But let us focus on the album Down and Outs. This is how we roll. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the the concept of this band because it sort of started off where you're doing some Mott the Hoople and you were doing some other stuff, and now we've moved into original music and, and saying, hey, you know what? We're not a cover band. We are a band that does original stuff. Uh, talk to me about doing music outside of Def Leppard and also just doing original music with Down and Outs. Well, the original idea of the whole band was only to be 45 minutes, one live performance. You know, when Mott the Hoople reformed for some shows in 2009, which 10 years ago now, it's incredible. Um, I was asked by the band if I would uh, be a like special guest opening act on the last night of their London run. You know, I've been a fan of the band for so long. They really wanted me to um, be there for these shows, which I was going to be there anyway, but they wanted me involved. And uh, I just kind of thought that they'd probably just want me to introduce them. But when Ian Hunter said, no, put a band together and open for us. I'm like, well, who? You know, I don't know anybody outside of Def Leppard. And he said, luckily, the choir boys, the London choir boys are managed by the same guy that was promoting the Mott show. So they volunteered to be my band. So I okay, okay, so we put this band together and, and we were going to just play a 45-minute set of very cleverly chosen post-Mott the Hoople material that they'd all been involved in after Hoople split in 74. So there was the band, uh, you know, they carried on with a different singer, abbreviated the name of the band to Mott. 
and then they um, they did two albums. They morphed into a band called British Lions, and all the time that this was happening, Ian Hunter was releasing solo material. So I chose some what I thought were really cool songs from that period, and they went down a storm live in front of the Mop fans, and we kind of got press gang into making an album, so which was never going to happen. We were supposed to just say our goodbyes and go home. So we did the first album, My Regeneration, which had some really good success at American Radio. You know, we had uh, a number five with England Rocks and a number one with Overnight Angels, which is insane for a band that technically didn't really exist. So um, we always figured that after the success of that first album, that we would have to do something, you know, do a second album. <clears throat> we did the second album in 2014. And, you know, when we, we just enjoy each other's company and we have fun doing this. So when it came to doing a third album, I kind of figured we'd, the well was dry with doing Mott-related covers, and we were kind of over it, you know. And so, well, why don't we try some other people's songs? And then after about 10 minutes, I said, why don't we just try writing some instead? And they were all like, yeah, cool. But it just turned out that I was kind of very fertile in the songwriting department for the next five years. So I ended up writing all the material, except for one cover. We did decide way back in the early days of this project to do uh, White Punks on Dope, the Tube song. But other than that, I came to the table with a bunch of songs. I'd written 90% of them on a piano so that I knew that there wouldn't be any conflict of interest with Def Leppard, you know. So it just kind of made sense. I was, I was writing on the piano in a very different way to anything I've ever contributed towards a Def Leppard project. So I was very comfortable that there was a, a reason to do this. And it, like I said, it wasn't going to conflict with anything I would be doing with the lips. So, you know, I was really happy the way it turned out. The guys loved it. They were on board with me just writing it all. And uh, I love the way it turned out. I'm very, very happy with the album. Well, as you should be. The, that, that first single, This Is How We Roll, is, is absolutely terrific. And, and it's very apropos that you covered White Punks on Dope, which is a song that Motley Crue covered uh, back in the early 2000s. So hopefully on the uh, on the tour, you could come out and do it together. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about the the songwriting process in the sense that, you know, with Def Leppard, there is a, there's a sound, there's an expectation. It's got to be sort of larger than life. It's got to be very much arena rock. And this is very sort of down and dirty. I mean, I just, this is the sound that I love. I mean, this, this brings me back to sort of high and dry. It brings me back to those early days. Is it refreshing for you to to go back to a, a more stripped down, I don't want to say underproduced sound, but, you know, not not all uh, produced like a, like a Def Leppard song is. Uh, talk to me about making songs this way, just more rock, more rock and roll. Um, and it is a lot more basic than Def Leppard, but, you know, we need to understand one thing here, that Def Leppard doesn't, we're not forced to write a certain way. We choose to write kind of, you know, bombastic arena rock type stuff. That's what we do and it's what we love doing. But at the same time, you know, everybody in a band has an individuality to them that doesn't always come out unless they make solo records. So all you ever know about certain bands, like say for for example, The Beatles and Led Zeppelin, you wouldn't have known their individually, uh, their individual kind of influences until they split and started doing solo material. And then you, what you'll get is when it's, say, Paul McCartney or John Lennon, you'll hear a little bit of overspill of Beatles 
sound, but then there'll there'll be the individuality of it because he doesn't have McCartney on the Lennon stuff. He doesn't have Lennon on the McCartney stuff. And same thing with with say Zeppelin when Robert Plant went solo. He was no longer writing with, with Jimmy Page, so there was going to be a twist. And it's the same thing with this, really. The twist is that I'm writing the same way that I would write in my mind, but I'm writing on a piano instead of a guitar. Uh, when it came to lyrics, I was writing with a different headspace because it was a bit more introspective. So I was scratching a, an itch for sure, you know. Um, but it's not one that I was so desperate to do that it would make me want to quit Def Leppard or something like that. This is just a side thing. It was, um, it's like stepping out of a, a long running soap opera to act in an indie movie for a couple of times, you know, and then go back. Um, the, the process was no different really. I'd sit and I would, you know, labor over these songs until I was happy with them. They didn't get written in three minutes they may appear that way, but they were as much love and attention spent on them as any Def Leppard contribution I've made. Um, it was just comes from a different angle. That's all, you know, it's just a way. It's just like loaning yourself out to a different team. You're still playing the same game really. Um, so it was fun to do. And I think that the biggest difference was that I didn't have anybody. I didn't have a soundboard. I wasn't bouncing ideas off somebody else. I wasn't being, uh, I didn't have the weight of expectation because there is no expectation with, with down and outs. So that again was a slightly different approach, I suppose. It was, yeah, there's a freedom to that for sure. And I didn't have to worry about what everybody else thought because I was doing this for me. <laughs> um, the guys in, in down and outs obviously care. Um, and the, the guys in Jeff Leopard were probably just interested, but um, I was left to my own devices to create this record, but it was a team effort to record it. And it was recorded in the same studio Def Leppard have recorded for the last 25 years with the same engineer that we've used for the last 20. So that there was a, there's a certain familiarity in the way it was recorded. But it was always going to sound different because it's completely different people. Well, and, and it sounds great. So let me ask you this. Now that you've ventured out into original music, do we see another new album come down the road? Or is this sort of the point final where you just went, okay, we did a couple of covers, and now we got to the original. We've said it all. How do you sort of see the band moving forward more, or we got to where we needed to be? No, I mean, it's an ongoing thing, but it's ongoing the same way that um, class reunions are. You know, it's not always the same every year, and not everybody turns up at the same time. We've got a situation where everybody in the down and outs has got a mothership that's insanely busy. You know, you've got Def Leppard, you've got three of the guys who are in the Choir Boys, you've got Cher in Vixen, and Phil Martini, the drummer in Wayward Sons. When I call them up and say, are you free? The chances of all five of the other people saying, yes, we're free, for X amount of time is extremely thin. The chances, you know, it's, it's highly unlikely. That's why this record took the best part of five years to complete. It only took about three or four months to record, but I had to do it in two or three days at a time and grab them, sometimes two of them. You know, we recorded the drums in London, we recorded the bass in Florida, we recorded all the rhythm guitars, backing vocals, and solos and lead vocals in my studio, but not all at once. So it was done very much like the way the Stones did Exile on Main Street. It was an album that 
started off in um, three or four, you know, different studios and was mixed in one. And, um, you know, it was a joy to do because I'd read all the, the history and the stories of, like, uh, Exile on Main Street, for example, being recorded the way it was. And it's, it's often regarded as the Rolling Stones' best album. So the fact that it was piecemeal didn't really bother me at all. I had the vision of the songs, and that's all that really mattered to me, you know. So how we achieved the the final uh, output, if you like, was really irrelevant. It was a case of just get on with it until it's done. We will make more music given the opportunity, but it's it's not. We're not signed to a label. We don't have an A and R man saying you know, tapping his watch face, saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Um, we'll make a record in maybe another five years before I get a chance to make another one. But I'm constantly writing all the time for Def Leppard, for anybody that wants to hear a song that might not fit the format of Def Leppard. Um, and in, in that case, I have this great other outlet for those type of songs. Yeah, great. Now, we're, we're down to about 10 minutes, so let me ask you just a couple of, of Def Leppard questions. Uh, Nikki Six recently threw up on his Instagram a a demand that, that Def Leppard play Hello America on the stadium tour. And, of course, that is from the first album that is going to be celebrating 40 years in 2020. Um, first of all, will you uh, acquiesce his demand to play Hello America? And, and talk to me a little bit about that 40th anniversary <laughs> and, and the upcoming box set or, or, or that's related to the early demos and stuff. <laughs> well, uh, that's the kind of thing I'd expect from Nicky. I suppose I'm going to have to do the same thing and throw something in the air, you know, equally as um, testing as that particular request was. Um, I doubt very much we'll be playing something from the first album, because, you know, Vivian and Phil weren't on it. We've occasionally played Rock Brigade just because we may have been browbeaten by a certain front row somewhere. And when we've played it, it's only been three people that recognize the song. So, you know, there's just certain parts of your career. It's okay to jettison. And the first album for us pretty much is at this point in our career. We've no problem in existing and no problem celebrating its 40th anniversary by talking about it and doing a, uh, an early days re-release. Um, I think the the cool thing about the re-release is not the fact that the album's just been remastered, because essentially it's just the same record, but it may sound a little brighter and a little you know, more pristine than, than the original vinyl did 40 years ago. But it's the bonus material of the live performance of most of that album from Oxford New Theatre in 1980. We'd forgotten about the tapes, to be quite honest, and... Um, and we dug them out and preserved them by baking them as you have to and then transferred them into Pro Tools, we were very surprised at how good it was. So we were more than happy to put it out. Um, and with hindsight, really glad that we made the decision to record it. Why we never put it out before, I don't know. But we, I guess back in those days, the, the mantra was, you make the record, you tour, and then you make another record. Whereas this day and age, it's not really like that anymore. And so pulling out the old material, we're kind of just doing what the Beatles have been doing or the Stones or the Who. You know, you're moving into a different aspect of your career where the hindsight part of it is is very interesting to long-term fans. So that's something to celebrate for sure. As for what we're going to play live, we haven't made that decision yet, but um, 
I think Nikki may be a little disappointed on that one. <laughs> That's too bad. Uh, just real quick, because we are running out of time, I, I do want to bring you over to High and Dry, which to me is still my favorite Def Leppard album. I, I just love everything about it. Uh, it, of course, is where you start working with Mutt Lang, and we all know what, what happened there, Pyromania, Hysteria. But talk to me about how, how did that collaboration come to be? I mean, here he is coming off of Back in Block, coming off of Foreigner 4. He did some stuff with Clover, which ended up being Huey Lewis. How does sort of a rookie band out of the, the new wave of British heavy metal get Mutt Lang to sit down and make High and Dry with them? Well, don't forget as well, before, before ACDC, Mutt Lang had had some UK success, at least, with bands like City Boy, uh, Boomtown Rats. The Boomtown Rats, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, a band called The Motors. Um, he did their first album. So he'd only really just moved into what you'd call massive success. Um, but it was more a case of right place, right time. You know, Mutt Lang was ACDC's producer uh, when they were out on the high and dry. Uh, sorry, on the, uh, make you fall apart there, on the, um, on the Highway to Hell tour. And uh, we, we got the support slot on the Highway to Hell tour um, because we ended up with the same management as ACDC. They were signed to Lieber Krebs in New York, and Lieber Krebs had our first EP and loved it and wanted us, and they signed us. And um, by the time we got onto the Highway to Hell tour, where we were kind of on trial to see how good we were, because, you know, you get to play 10 songs rather than just the three that they'd heard from the studio. Um, we were kind of on board, and, and Mutt, would come and see ACDC and Peter Mensch, who was our representative at uh, Lieber Krebs, begged Mutt to come and watch the band. He was already in the building. So he said, will you come and watch my new signings? And Mutt saw us. And in his words, way after the fact, he said that night, which was at the Bingley Hall in Staffordshire, he said, I saw a rough diamond. He says, I saw massive potential that needed a really good polish. Um, and he, want, he, he loved the idea of us being this piece of clay, I suppose, that he could mold a certain way, but it had to be, you know, we had some great riffs, we had some great melodies, we had some great vocal ideas. We, we wanted to utilize the power of a band like ACDC, but use the kind of dynamics and, and, and melody of a band like Queen. And if we could kind of mold the two of them together... And I think Mutt was looking for a band that were willing and able to be that band. And that was us, you know. We were young. We were 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. And get the opportunity to work with Mutt Lang, you take it. You know, it's like not something that you... You don't look at that gift horse in the mouth. You sign, you sign that particular, you know, uh, contract there and then sort of thing. You know, we went through some hellish times with Mutt, learning on the learning curve, you know, learning that how he worked, adapting to this new way of working. But it was worth every, you know, blood, sweat and tear that we spilled, if you like, all of it, because we, we learned from him and that's what we wanted to do. We, we furthered ourselves. He had a band that were prepared to go the extra mile where a lot of other bands that he'd worked with didn't, which is why maybe he only made one album with Foreigner. You know, um, I don't know, certain, certain bands their relationship with the producer only lasts for a while. Other artists like Queen worked with Roy Thomas Baker for six albums because they saw the same kind of thing. And so did he. So what we saw was the, what we hoped when we worked with him on high and dry was the beginning of a long 
fruitful relationship in the studio, and that's exactly what we got. Oh, absolutely. And uh, there's a friend of mine who's in an 80s rock band who just did a rock album with Mutt Lang in 2019. It hasn't been released yet, but you listen to the demos, and then you listen to the after Mutt touched them, and you just you just sense the brilliance. I mean, it's just absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I'll finish on this because we have a couple more minutes. So t- two quick questions. Uh, let me just get you back to Montreal Great relationship with the city. You always come here. You, you've done tour rehearsals out of here back in the day. You've hubbed out of here back in the day. Uh, talk to me about what is it about this place that just gets Def Leppard. Even in 1996, when it wasn't going so well in other markets, the Molson Center or the Bell Center still sold out. You recorded it. Qu'est-ce qui se passe à Montréal? What is it about Montreal? Well, it's something that grows over a period of time. You know, every city that you go to first time round is, you know, will leave a mark on you. You know, you go, wow, that, I remember that gig we did in such and such a place. And sometimes you go, yeah. And I remember one we did in a different city where it wasn't so good. And until that improves, you go back there again and you maybe win them over or you have a better gig yourselves. It just seems that every time we turn up in Montreal, we win. You know, it's always been an incredible city for us. The first time we played there, was in 83 on the Pyromania tour. And the, reso- the, re- the reception everywhere in Canada was amazing. But then every time we went back, we always said it was the loudest crowd that we ever played in front of. And we said it publicly all over the world. We would take our lives in our hands when we'd be in Mexico and they'd say, which is the loudest crowd? And they wanted us to say Mexico. And we'd have to say, I'm sorry, but it's Montreal. You know, <laughs> but we got out of there alive. You know, and I don't think we've ever been to Montreal ever where it's not been good. I don't know why the people of Montreal took to us so much. You'd have to ask, ask them. But I can tell you that's exactly why we took to, to the audiences in Montreal, because they've always been incredibly supportive, vocal, and we've always sold really well. We've never really had bad attendances in Montreal. This is something about... The, the relationship, I can't explain why it is so so bonding, but it is. You know, we're tight. It's like we're glued together. Whenever we aren't on the... Whenever tour dates are put in front of us and we don't see Montreal on them, we freak out and go, why are we not playing Montreal? You know, um, and they'll say, well, we are, but it's going to be next year on a different part of the tour. Okay, good. As long as you're not... Don't leave us out because that's not 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 smart. And it's somewhere that we always want to try and get a gig in because it's just been an amazing experience for this last 30 odd years. Every time we get there, it's just super, super fun. Oh, it is. And I, and I haven't missed a show since hysteria uh, in Montreal, but I, and I'll finish with this, uh, the stadium tour, of course, a uh, Motley Crue, Poison and Joan Jett, uh, mostly American. In fact, uh, entirely American for now. Uh, will the tour expand to other markets, including Canada, including Montreal, and just talk to me about the package in general, because, my God, I saw you with Def Leppard and Cheap Trick in Boston, and you're playing stadiums where most of your peers are having a hard time filling up bowling alleys, and you're playing stadiums. I mean, holy mackerel, right? Yeah, it's sometimes you pinch yourself. You know, out on our own, we can do stadiums um, in certain areas of America, uh, we can do arenas, sheds all over the, you know, North America, including Canada, um, and be 
it not really be important who the other act is, if you like. But with this one, we were we loved what we did with Journey. It was only ten stadiums in about fifty arenas, but it was a great way to go out on the road. You know, we've always had great bands tour with us. Back in the day, we've had Tesla, Queensryche, LA Guns, Europe, Joan Jett, Billy Idol, Heart, Cheap Trick. I mean, just incredible bands. And that's never going to change because we've always believed in it should be from the second that the house lights go down for the first time that the fans are in for a fun ride. Um, when, the, when the idea of... When, when, when we spoke with the, you know, the guys after the movie came out, The Dirt... And, and, you know, their representatives were talking to ours and saying, what do you think? And we were like going, I think this could be the biggest thing since the 80s, if you like, you know. Um, and then the, the Live Nation people said, well, let's make it into like a kind of a traveling circus, you know, festival on the road, if you like, not just a gig. Um, make it an event. And we've all, I, I see the word event and my eyes bug out and my ears pop up because I'm like, okay, you got my attention now. I want everything we do to be an event. So to be able to bring out, you know, this fantastic lineup of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, Poison, Motley Crue and Dev Leopard, you know, to these, it started out as 22. It's now moving close to 30 stadiums. Of course, it's expanding throughout the U.S. It's probably going to ex- expand further than that uh, into next year. So I don't have any you know, concrete details for you, but use your imagination. I mean, something this successful, we'd like to keep it going for as long as we can. As you should. Uh, and with that, I know we ran out of time. So just uh, thank you so much. And for, for all the music uh, over the years, uh, just thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure being a fan of the bands, just always delivering, always putting out quality material, uh, never disappointing. Uh, and uh, for that, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you. Mitch, thank you, and thank you for indulging me in my little side project, which is only a small little aspect of my life, but it's such a fun one. That it's, it's nice to be able to share it with whoever's interested, and I appreciate the opportunity of talking about that as well. Yeah, and I have to say, if folks uh, haven't picked it up, get yourself the Japanese version. There's a bonus track on there. It is well worth the import cost, and, and just pick it up. Uh, thank you, sir. Merci. Anytime, buddy. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Ever wonder what Vince Neil would sound like if he was a black belt in Taekwondo? What about what his favorite McDonald's menu item is? Just hold the pickles. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFun.